All right, we are going to take a look at the parable of the four soils. It's in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It is not in John, but we're going to take a look at it. First, let me read it. Mark 4, starting in verse 1. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path. And the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked, and it yielded no grain. And other seed fell into good growing up and increasing old and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable. He said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And when they have no root in themselves, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while... Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. So we live in a post-modern world. You go, what's that? Well, the modern world was characterized by the thought that if we just use reason and science, we can build utopia. 
And while there's been a lot of scientific advance, and we've gotten really smart, we have this thing called the internet, and we have advances in medicine, and advances in technology, we've kind of realized that it didn't bring utopia. So we're post-believing that the modern world will bring utopia. Okay? There's kind of a disillusionment with the world. Now, the prevailing thought in postmodernism is we thought we had it all figured out, but we didn't. Therefore, we can never be sure we've found absolute truth. Okay? Postmodernism is all about doubting whether we know anything for sure. We can never be sure we have the truth. Now, what's funny about that is that's a statement of absolute truth, right? It's a, it's a self-refuting idea, okay? Now, this philosophy, though, has kind of conquered the academic world, and even on a street level, most people are like, oh, you have your truth, I have my truth, let's watch Netflix, okay? Um, now, there's, there's postmodern thought, uh, even at an academic level, and, and even in the world of how to do something as simple as read a text. The idea in postmodernism is that the writer is so caught up in his culture, and the reader's so caught up in their culture that you really can't understand one another. So when a writer writes a text, you can't really know what they're writing, so go ahead and get out of it what you can. Okay? In other words, the meaning, they would say, doesn't come from the writer, but we can't get to what he has to really say, so provide your own meaning. Okay? Now, we see this has crept into the church, both informally. You know, you ever been in a Bible study? Well, what this verse means to me is, and then somebody says, oh, well, I got something completely different out of that, and everybody goes, oh, that's great too. And then somebody says, well, I got another thing, and there's no agreement on what it means, and everybody's fine that it means something different for everybody else. So there's the informal postmodern thought, but then there's formal postmodern thought. So, so this has crept in to the church today, and the result is we can't really know for sure what the Bible means, so never should any, anything be proclaimed with divine authority. We can speculate and we can share thoughts, but proclaiming the word of God with authority is ruled out by definition because nobody has the real truth. We don't think we can, we can really arrive at real truth. Now, the problem with that is that the word of God itself 
commands preachers to do this, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Now, I don't think this verse gives permission to, you know, arrogant, blowhard preachers to think everything they teach is infallible, okay? That's that's not what, what this is talking about. There still needs to be humility in scholarship and in teaching. But the underlying assumption is that Paul is writing to Titus, who's kind of in a different culture. He's on the Isle of Crete, and Paul's on the mainland. The assumption is that Titus can teach the Word of God authoritatively because the text is God-inspired. The writer can write it, and the reader can have access to it and understand it. My, my whole refutation of postmodernism is that God's word was intended by God to be understood by God's people. We are not in a cloud. Now, of course, there are some differences between the, when the writer wrote and the reader reads, and we have to try to figure out what those differences are and factor that into our interpretation. But we live in a world, we live in a time that says, well, we can't find out truth, we can't know truth. Therefore, anybody who claims they know it is arrogant. And I would say God has given us an inspired, infallible Bible. And we do have to work to interpret it, but we can understand it. You know, Jesus also assumes we can understand the Bible. He told the parable of the four soils, and then the disciples were kind of like, huh, what, what does it mean? And G- Jesus said, well, let's, let's look at Mark 4, 13. He said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? They weren't getting it, but he doesn't give them a pass. He doesn't say, oh, well, you don't get it because, you know, God's word can't be understood. No, he assumes they should understand it. Let's back up here to John 12. John 12, 48. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. What that tells me is that God is fair and we will stand before God on judgment day, and be judged according to his word, which we can understand. Now, all that's kind of an intro to say, you live in a world that tells you you're not accountable to the Bible. But the Bible tells us we're accountable to the Bible. And even to understand those things that are kind of hard to understand, like parables, okay? Now, today, we're not going to get into the minute details. You know, the, the rocky soil represents this, and the thorny soil represents something else. We're not going to get into those minute details, but here's what we are going to get into. I'm going to give you three things. How to interpret parables, interpreting parables. Number two, the intention of parables. Why did Jesus teach in parables? He tells us. And number three, 
the importance of this particular parable. So we're going to cover those three things this morning, and next week, y'all from out of, out of the state, you're going to have to come back next week to hear the interpretation of all the rest of uh, the parable, okay? So first of all, let's talk about interpreting parables in general, okay? Now, right now, I'm teaching an online class. Yeah, right now I'm doing that. I'm teaching an online class called Studying and Teaching the Bible. And you know what we teach? How to study and teach the Bible, okay? Now, the first point we cover is that the Bible is written in a whole bunch of different styles, different what you call genres. You know, like if you're, if you're looking through Netflix and you want to watch a movie, we, we kind of already know, you, you go, well, what mood am I in? Am I in the mood for a mystery, a drama, just something funny to laugh at? Um, we look for movies according to different styles. Now, if you, if you think you're getting a comedy, but it turns out being a really intense mystery, you're going to be disappointed because you watch it differently. You have different expectations. Well, the same is true with the Bible. It's not all written the same way. Some of the different genres, there's, there's narrative, which is just reporting uh, Jesus went here, he healed a person, he went to this town, he gathered people. That's historical narrative. There's poetry, like the psalm we began with. It's a poem about the Word of God. Now, when, when you read poetry, it has a different style. It uses figures of speech, like personification. All the trees clap their hands. Now, if you read that like historical narrative, then you're going to go, there are trees out there with hands, and they can clap. No, we know it's using exaggerated language, okay? Now, there's a style of literature called a parable, okay? Parables have a, a rule of interpretation, and the rule is this. Don't read a parable like an allegory. You go, what's an allegory? Well, an allegory is a fictional story where every element of it corresponds to something else. So if you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, you know, Pilgrim represents a Christian, and he meets all these different people, Mr. Worldly Wise, and Mr. Double Talk, and every character represents something in the spiritual world. Okay? That is an allegory. A parable, on the other hand, you're to ask, what is the main point? What's the main point of the parable? And not try to read something into every detail. Uh, the classic example of this is, you know, the parable of the Good Samaritan. A man's going down the road, and some thieves beat him up, leave him half dead. He's lying there, and a couple of Jewish priests walk by, and they, they ignore him. But another man walks by, 
and he picks him up, puts him on his donkey, carries him to the Holiday Inn, right? pays for his stay, bandages him up, and then Jesus says, by the way, that guy was a Samaritan. And that, that was to the Jewish people, oh, Samaritans are disgusting, and the Samaritan's the hero of the story. Now, Augustine, who lived back in the 300s, here was, here's his interpretation of the parable of the Good Samaritan. The man who gets beat up, that's Adam, as of Adam and Eve fame. The thieves who beat him up are the devil and his demons. When they stripped him, they stripped mankind of, of our immortality. That's why we die. They beat him, which is the temptations of the devil. He was left half dead, so he was, um, that, that shows us that we were dead spiritually but alive physically. The priest and the Levite who come by, that's the Old Testament priesthood. The Samaritan who comes by, that's Jesus. The inn is the church and the innkeeper, the Apostle Paul. And you go, I never got that. It's because that's not in there. (laughs) The, The problem is Augustine was trying to take a parable and read all his systematic theology into it. You know what the point of the parable of the Good Samaritan is? Help your neighbor. Okay? Even, even when your neighbor, even when you're a Jew and your neighbor's a, a Samaritan, or you're a Samaritan and your neighbor's a Jew, that, you know, cross those barriers to love your neighbor. That's the point of the parable. Okay? Now, having made that great point, okay? Doesn't Jesus go on to interpret the parable of the four soils allegorically? Point one, don't interpret parables allegorically. Point two, Jesus interprets the parable of the soils allegorically. The four different soils represent four specific kinds of people. Okay? Well, let me give you a second principle. When we're supposed to interpret a parable allegorically or an analogy allegorically, the scripture usually gives us the keys to the interpretation. Okay? The seed represents, he goes on, it represents the word of God. The the path, our hard-hearted people, where the, the word doesn't grow. Rocky and thorny people are surface believers who fade away. They're not true believers. But the good soil, those are true believers, and the way we know that they are true believers is they actually produce a lot of fruit in their life. Okay? When Scripture is to be interpreted allegorically, Scripture gives us the variables. Kind of like when Jesus talks about the vine. He goes, I am the vine, you are the branches. My father, he's the gardener and he's pruning and the fruit would be good works and your character being transformed. Okay, he gives us the variables. Okay, now you go, but doesn't Jesus expect the disciples to have gotten the meaning of the parable of the four soils before he gave the interpretation. Yes. 
Mark 4.13, and he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? And he said that before he gave the allegorical keys. How could he have expected them to get anything out of this parable? Well, they still should have been able to ask what's the main point of this story. Shouldn't they have been able to go, hmm, it's a story about a guy who spreads seed, a farmer, but not all the seed produced the same results. So not all soils produce the same amount of fruit. Okay. Next, he would assume that they should ask this. This guy's a preacher. He's, not a, he, he's really not giving farming advice, is he? He's getting at something spiritual. So what spiritual point is he making? And then they should have asked, well, what do our scriptures that we already have, what do our Old Testament scriptures say about fruit and trees? Oh, the very first psalm, the one we all memorized in you know, synagogue school, is about fruitfulness and plants and people. Psalm 1, they all would have known it. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So here again is the law. The, the word of God is, is key. And the guy who receives it and meditates on it, what's he like? He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither in all that he does he prospers the wicked on the other hand are not so but are like the chaff that the wind drives away so they already should have had a category in their mind that those who absorb the word are fruitful and those who ignore the word are not fruitful. They dry up and blow away. So without even explaining the parable, asking what's the main point, what's the spiritual point, what do our scriptures already teach us, they should have been able to get the gist of it. Now, in this middle section, before he really explains the details, next he talks about why he speaks in parables anyway. So let's talk about the intention of why Jesus uses parables. In fact, in uh, verse 10 it says, And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. Now in Matthew 13, it's the same setting and they're even, uh, even more specific. It says, Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus, of all the styles of teaching, why parables? 
Now, you would think he would say, well, because I took a teaching class and they say use lots of stories and illustrations because it's a more captivating way to teach and it makes your teaching more understandable, so use lots of parables and stories. He goes on to say virtually the opposite of that. Right? In essence, he's saying there's two reasons I speak in parables for two different sets of people. Verse 11, he said to them, to you, you who are, are here seeking me, you who are following me and, and you're asking me what the meaning of the parable is, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. Those who meditate and they think and they question and they pursue Jesus, you're the ones who are going to get the secret. But to the others, okay, but, uh, but for those outside, everything is in parables. Who are on the outside? Now, you got to remember that last week, Jesus talked about those who had just committed the unforgivable sin. What's the unforgivable sin? Well, we, we, we went through a, a whole bunch of things it isn't, but bottom line, it's after the Holy Spirit gives you clarity on the gospel, it's you definitively rejecting Jesus. And there's a point of no return. There's a point of such hardness of heart that it's unforgivable. That's who the outsiders are. So parables draw the seekers in to question and to ask and to seek, and they will be rewarded. But those who are hard-hearted, they're not going to get it anyways. Verse 12, so that... Now, a lot of people don't like this. But that's a purpose statement. I speak in parables so that... And now he's going to quote from Isaiah chapter 6 where God says in Isaiah 6, they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest and lest they should turn and be forgiven. You know what Isaiah's ministry was? He was called by God to preach to the Israelites who had rejected God over and over and over again. And the more he preached the truth, the harder and harder their hearts became. He had a preaching ministry to harden hearts. Okay? And Jesus is saying, I speak in parables, one, to reveal truth to true seekers, two, to harden the hearts of those who have already rejected the truth. Okay? We saw last week that there is a point of no return. In 2 Thessalonians, he talks about, Paul talks about uh, people who refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion 
so that they may believe what is false. In order, there's, there's that purpose again, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Do you know that about 95% of preachers and about 100% of churchgoers evaluate a good sermon as one that everybody loves? Okay. Is there a place in your theology for a great sermon to be one that hardens the hearts of truth Do you ever go, Pastor, that was a great sermon. The whole back row left mad. <laughs> you see, I don't think we have that category. But doesn't Jesus teach that? I speak in parables to have seekers draw deeper in and to continue to harden the hearts of those who could care less. Okay. Now, let, let's take a look at the last point. Now, this says the importance of parables. It should say the importance of this parable, of this particular parable. Because Jesus does set this parable aside as a very important parable. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable, the parable of the four soils? How then will you understand all the parables? Now, why is this a foundational parable? Well, because it's his first elongated parable. Now, he's used plenty of analogies so far, but this is his first in-depth parable, and it tests whether they have the basic spiritual discernment to understand that Jesus uses physical things to represent spiritual truth, right? In other words, do they have the discernment to be able to say, whatever he's talking about, it ain't farming, okay? You know, in, in John's gospel, there's a theme of Jesus using physical language and people not getting it. He goes to, to, a, to a Pharisee named Nicodemus. He goes, Nicodemus... <laughs> You can't even enter the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again. And Nicodemus goes, well, you mean I need to crawl back in my mama's tummy? No. He's talking about being born not just physically but spiritually. And he says to the woman at the well, you know, if you would ask me, I would have given you living water. And she says, I don't see no bucket not talking about physical water, but spiritual water. And then in John chapter 6, big controversial chapter where Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life. And I, I think it's a no-brainer that he's, he's, he's not saying you literally need to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Some people say, oh, no, that's communion. It turns into his blood and body. I, I think he's saying, I'm going to give my life on the cross. 
And since I just multiplied bread, let me use my, the analogy of bread. You got to eat my flesh, meaning you got to believe in me. Okay, so he uses physical illustrations all the time to point to spiritual truth. That's why this parable is so significant. He's testing whether they can even do that. But secondly, this parable is laying out what we can expect over the church age. It's been about 2,000 years now. What we can expect over the church age when the gospel is proclaimed. Well, what, what are we supposed to conclude? Not all seed sown will produce converts. Expect some to be disinterested. Expect others to show initial interest and fall away. And expect others to get it and to flourish spiritually. If we could just remember that. Why is it that, and I'm going to complain about pastors. I'm, a, I'm one of them, okay? Why is it that pastors are always running after the latest thing to bring success? And I mean numerical success. Let's run to the latest pastor's conference, church conference, to find out how you too can be a big, huge church. Okay? I think it would be fun to do a conference how to preach to hardened hearts. You know, wouldn't that draw a bunch of people in? To, oh, yeah, we want to we shrink our church <laughs> down to the, the good soil. Okay? Here's why the four soils is so important to keep in mind. When we think it's our job to make everyone happy, something Jesus couldn't even do, we will inevitably alter the gospel message to make it more palatable for people who have no interest in spiritual things. Okay. In fact, Paul said this. Writing to Timothy. Pastor Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead. This is serious. He's bringing the judgment of God into this charge. And by his appearing in his kingdom, here's my charge, preach the word. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, okay? When it's growing and when it's cold and it's not growing, preach the word, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Why does Paul need to tell Timothy that? Because, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. We will, we will gravitate toward Preachers who'll tell us what we want to hear. And they'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. You know, the question here 
is who is Paul condemning? Is it the preachers or is it the people who accumulate and, and go to the teachers who tell them what they want to hear? They both feed on each other. There will always be a market for false teachers because there's always people who only want to hear certain things and there will be those who do their surveys and read Barna and do all, the, uh, do all the research and find out what people want to hear and they craft their message. It kind of sounds like a sermon, but they craft their message to tickle ears and the numbers grow and it's successful. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that big numbers is always bad. Jesus had big numbers. The first church on Pentecost went from zero, went from 12, well actually 120, to 3,000 in one day. Okay, so numbers are not always bad, but here's what is bad. When all the soils are happy all the time. Jesus said this, woe to you when all people, he's talking about preachers, woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. Right? Now, let me, let me close with this. There are, there are people who go, but the gospel is good news. Therefore, shouldn't it be good news to everybody? Well, what I, what I did, I sat down with a piece of paper and I said, let me just write out the points of the gospel. And I, you know, depending on the day, I, you could have points or six points or nine points, but um, the, the basic truth of the gospel. And here's what I discovered. I came up with six, six statements. Five of them are really bad news that you need to understand before the sixth one becomes really good news. Okay, here they are. Number one, our greatest problem is a wrath of God problem. Okay? Now, you would think that our greatest problem would be a you know, marriage problem or a parenting problem or a finance problem or a Trump problem, or a Biden problem, or a car problem. Your greatest problem is as sinners, the wrath of God hangs over our head. Just read Romans chapter 1. That's how the gospel begins. The wrath of God is being revealed. That's kind of bad news. Number two, there's a judgment day coming. Okay. Number three, yep, there's eternity. There's an eternal heaven and an eternal hell. Okay. Number four, no one is righteous. No, not one. Romans chapter three. So far this doesn't sound very good, does it? Now, number five is the good news. Jesus died on the cross to pay your debt so you could be forgiven and spend eternity with him in heaven.
that's some pretty good news. And point six is really good news or really bad news, depending on who you are. You're saved by grace alone through faith alone, not by anything you do. Now that's good news to the humble person who goes, oh, you mean I just, I trust in Jesus and he forgives me and he saves my soul? That is too good to believe. But the proud person goes, what? Quit making it so easy. I want to contribute. I have a lot to contribute to my salvation. That's pharisaical thinking. So even grace is bad news to the arrogant person. But to the humble person, to the person, the good soil, who's, and they're good because they've been tilled by God to realize, I can't offer anything to God, but Jesus paid it all. That's some pretty good news. And the person on the good soil, the person who is the good soil, embraces that and it produces fruit to the glory of God. Let me pray for us. Lord, what a brilliant plan to teach in parables. And the disinterested can just write them off. But the interested say, what's he, what's he teaching? What's he saying? And the more we seek and the more we dig and the more we explore, the more we understand what these parables are saying. Lord, I pray that you would till the soil of our hearts to make us receptive to your word so it produces much fruit. And Lord, I pray maybe even this morning there are those who have never really understood the gospel, that you paid it all and you freely offer salvation to all who trust in you. Open the hearts, Lord, so we believe and trust in you and then produce a multitude of fruit for your glory. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.